Welcome to the Abyssinian syllabary, where we spell out Ethiopia in 33 characters. I'm Eve-Marie Stranger, your host and the compiler of these Abyssinian lives. Nota bene. While any resemblance to actual countries, past or present, and to historical figures is not purely coincidental, this is a work of fiction. For a primer on these Ethiopian characters, newcomers may start with the prologue by Manuel de Goes. To order the book or a poster of the Abyssinian syllabary, visit Ethiopia.com. That's U-T-H-I-O-P-I-A dot com. The world, announced Zareakob, resembles a freshly baked injera galette, round and smooth on one side, while it is punctuated by an infinity of holes on the other. And who holds the gourd that pours out the batter onto the hot stone, master? Birdo wanted to know. Why don't you tend to the washing up? His master curtly enjoined his too fervent disciple. We shall conclude these matters some other time. The Apocrypha of Zareakob Byron Kun de Proroc G. Victor Laszlo quickly resolved that he would be neither Mexican nor Jewish, nor even, for that matter, a Laszlo. The birth registry reveals to us that the Baron Byron Kun de Proroc was in fact born in 1902 as Victor Laszlo in Mexico of Hungarian Jewish progenitors. These parents make a fortune in ready-made tailoring so that Victor can go to a select boarding school in the fancy northern suburbs of Mexico City. Victor learns here to spit out his English vowels with a clipped Bostonian accent in elocution lessons provided by an old wasp marooned in Mexico. Years later, Byron would often speak with affection of that old queer Monty to his comrades round a bottle of tequila under the torpid ventilators of many a Yucatan port. For this is where he launches his trips to discover the sacred city of the plumed serpent, as Byron likes to call the crumbling heaps he uncovers in the jungle. It is in this manner, with his enunciated vowels and a sure sense of theatricality, that Byron fleeces the socialites of New York and Massachusetts, to whom he sells his jolly expeditions. Byron has not been called Victor for many years, so long, in fact, that he has perhaps misplaced the name himself. He knows how to put on a show, Byron, and, as an excellent ventriculist, he assumes the voices of his old Anglo-Saxon elocution tutor, sometimes making him a master of Latin rhetoric for the occasion. The stories are framed by the maple trees of an elite Ivy League college that Byron has discovered in an old society yearbook and where he has, of course, never set foot. When he is in his element, Byron breaks into Yiddish, to near perfection it seems, to the astonishment of his audience. Byron explodes with laughter, recounting that he once knew a Jewish freshman of the name Victor. And he goes on to quote, The school 
necessarily of good reputation, having refused to grant him a place, the family simply bought up all the lands that lay round the school, threatening to shut down the access routes. By this blackmail, Victor's family obtained the admission of the first Jew to the school. And Byron would always stop at this point in the story, allowing the crackle of the campfire, the swoosh of the ventilator, to fill the silence for a few seconds, before leaning in to ask in a conspiratorial voice, And do you know what the second condition was for the family to keep those roads open? Before providing the answer himself in more peals of laughter, that they never accept another Jew. When Byron is in less high spirits, he laconically imparts that it is not Yiddish at all, and that he has no knowledge of this pigeon anyhow. Baron Byron, for he has bought himself the title, makes his New York debut, where he does study archaeology, and proves himself a brilliant, if hurried, student, given to taking shortcuts. In this milieu, his easy patter and polished manners, buffered by just the required patina of worldliness, are found to be pleasing. Byron marries well into a Mayflower family. Shortly after this society marriage, the Baron breaks ground for his first digs in Carthage, where, although he is left more or less to his own devices, Byron is slapdash in his work. He finds that he does not have the patience to do the digging thing. So much dirt, so little time, his words. Byron is pining for his wife, but even more for the parties of the jet set. He is bored with the dust and with the day laborers who are always too slow, always prone to grumbling. But oh, how Byron loves to recount a good story. In Yiddish, or for that matter, in any language. One evening, a friend down from Paris projects a film to the team, a black and white film d'ethnologie, showing the pearl divers of the happy isles of Micronesia. Byron swears softly to himself in Yiddish. This is what he will do. The very next day, he deserts the digs and the team without explanation. It is decided. Byron will be a movie maker. There follows for the Baron a decade of unmitigated joy. Byron is a filmmaker, a conférencier, a celebrity archaeologist. He travels the world with his films, which bear titles such as Digging for Lost African Gods or In Quest for Lost Worlds. He is acknowledged in the New York Times and the Daily Mail of London as the Baron Archaeologist. Byron chuckles. He writes bestsellers on the excursions in which he steals the sacred mummy of the Tuareg queen Tin Hinan in the Saharan oasis of Abelessa. There is nearly no need to be inventive. This last exploit does, however, end up earning him a measure of opprobrium. It makes no odds. Byron decides to hit higher, stronger, and to lie low for a while. He sets up a tour to Abyssinia, from where he returns with a film, alas, lost, and a book with the evocative title, Dead Men Do Tell Tales. Byron takes to Abyssinia like a fish to water. He will later impart to a close friend, 
You understand, over there, all of the posturing whites have a story they want to be forgotten, while all of the blacks are too busy pretending that, first of all, they are not Africans at all, and, secondly, that they are the descendants of Solomon and of the Queen of Sheba, and to tell they are the true Israelites. So, you see, a Jew, a baron, who is perhaps a third Mexican, as well as four quarters Hungarian, that's really small potatoes to them. Byron even witnesses, as he will later detail in his fantastical book, an imperial orgy given in honor of a fallen prince maintained under lock and key in a golden cage. Dead men do tell tales is best read with circumspection and in a Yiddish accent with Mexican inflections. The Baron Byron Kunde Perok will have a direful war. He is, after all, whether he wants it or not, a Jew. He finds himself confined in North America, a place that he does not much appreciate, and that appreciates him less. The private eyes of his in-laws have long discovered the Mexican-Hungarian-Jewish connection, and they have contrived to divorce him without suffering too large a loss. After 1945, the aged baron occupies a small studio apartment near Montrouge in France, and it is in a train boarded one day to tour his usual vacation spot on the Côte d'Azur. Byron has retained a few moneyed friends together with the habits that stem from their company. That the baron dies of a heart attack in birth number 22 of Wagon 67 of the Paris-Nice Sleeper. If one can still read the books of Victor Laszlo, his numerous films have been lost to this day, so that an Abyssinian imperial orgy remains a flickering figment. On his tombstone, somebody inscribed, Here lies Byron Kunde Prorok, a baron whose first language was always gibberish. Thank you.